Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is the top-rated podcast for slow fashion founders. Whether you're thinking about launching a slow fashion brand, scaling an existing clothing brand, or making a brand more environmentally friendly, we have you covered. I'm your host, Selena Ho, the founder and CEO of Recloseted. Each week, I'm sharing my proven strategies or interviewing industry experts. Without any further ado, let's get started. In this episode, I interview Mustafan, and he has spent his entire 10-year career as the director of Cyclo, where he has spearheaded sustainability as the core value of the first and largest recycled yarn producer mill in Bangladesh. He has worked alongside manufacturers and buyers to develop core collections across several product ranges made with 50% or more recycled cotton fibers. To execute Cyclo's circularity goals, he has helped to triple the recycling capacity in the Bangladesh factory and established regional production partners in Pakistan and India en route to making Cyclo one of the first brands established in Bangladesh to be used internationally. Before we dive into this episode, I want to quickly say that if you want an opportunity to work one-on-one with me, we have now opened up consulting intensives for the summer. And in this consulting intensive, it's a 60-minute strategy session with me. We can discuss any problems you're currently having, any challenges, and we will work together to build a strategy and a roadmap so you know exactly how to overcome these challenges and you are well on your way and set up for success. We are offering launch prices that are $200 off, and by the time you listen to this episode, you should have another two days to claim it. So make sure you jump on it. You can also bulk buy a few of them. So if you know that you wanna get my advice on a quarterly basis or you wanna check in every year, you can definitely buy a few and then you can lock in this price. To see if you would be a good fit and also book your consulting intensive, simply visit www.readcloseted.com slash CI and the link will also be in the show notes for you. And now, without any further ado, let's dive into the episode with Mustafan. So welcome to Recloseted Radio. To get started, do you want to give us a quick overview of your career? Um, yeah, sure. So uh, again, my name is Mustafan Munir. My entire career actually has been in this industry. I've been pretty lucky growing up. Uh, my father was working in, in the fashion garment industry and he was uh, an agent for large retailers. So I grew up always kind of around the industry and seeing what was new. And But like I never thought I was going to get into it. Uh, growing up, I first wanted to be a, I guess, a doctor. I didn't really know what, but I, I did some pre-med first. And then I, uh, I actually ended up studying music as a, as a major. And then this opportunity came to me when like business partners over here in Bangladesh were putting up this plant. Uh, they bought this, this machinery from Spain, basically a whole factory. And concept was simple was to take the garment waste because they were, you know, in manufacturing and they knew the process. So they're going to take the cut pieces out, what's his left on the cutting table. And as a mechanical process, this recycles it back into yarn and regenerates it back into fibers and then spins it back into yarn. So they told me the process, but they did not use the word recycle at the time. But so like I mentioned, I was like, okay, this is recycling. And uh, I actually first started uh, how I heard about this and how I got into it. I was first interning at uh, Sourcing Journal, which is a trade publication. 
and that's kind of how I got introduced to the like the, the people involved and stuff like that. And then um, I moved here about eight years ago from New York to Bangladesh to Dhaka to uh, take over this operation. And uh, that's so I spent the last eight years. I, I was taking over the past the two years before that. I was trying to do like sales and stuff like that. And then they were better suited for me, a uh, bigger opportunity just to come in and be on the ground and see on the front line of what recycling can actually be like for our industry. Yeah, that's great. And I want to talk a little bit more about recycling later. But just to preface this whole conversation, I think the word sustainability has so many meanings nowadays. So I would love to know what that word means to you. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I do think about it a lot. And the definition has lost some of its meaning or does mean different things to different people. So when I initially got into it it's like oh everything has to be as you know clean carbon neutral least water intensive and you know less chemicals and dyes all that all the stuff that we learned in like in high school and in uh, college are like you know about environmental impact and things like that so yeah throughout the time um I've had to adapt my definition because that's that was more of like an absolute definition and that's actually not what sustainability means something is something you can do over the course of time and it's, it's repeatable and it can be with minimum external damage i guess you can say it's like the what's the best that you can do over the course of time and hope that it doesn't um it's not like a one-time shot like now sustainability is like kind of a trendy word or like that and i don't i think the way that we should be orienting businesses is to get to the point where we don't really even have to mention it because like like we are doing the right things so yeah i guess that's what what it means to me in a personal sense and then yeah that makes a lot of sense and for me it really just means balance which is i think what you were getting at it's balancing our business activities but also leaving enough for future generations and i also really like your point about it being table stakes because a lot of brands now are really promoting the fact that they're you know sustainable and it's becoming a marketing thing but why can't every business just incorporate it and why can't it just be the norm now right so i think that's definitely definitely kind of on the same page and so talking a little bit more about Cyclo, can you tell us more about it? Sure. So, um, like I said earlier, we, we the, the technology is nothing new. What we had purchased was a kind of setup to take the waste leftovers from the cutting tables and sort it out manually and mechanically process it. So this is process was called regeneration. So cyclo to me was, okay, how do we make this into a recycling project rather than just kind of like a regeneration? So it was more the fiber, the yarn before was going, was downcycling often. So it was going to like insulation or it was going for incineration or like for like single use mops and stuff like that. What cyclo meant to me is like, okay, it's like you have to redefine and like reimagine what this process is and what it can and cannot do because with the right messaging and with the right work at it being able to squeeze it out to the process where you can actually upcycle back into the fashion industry back into the garment industry that's kind of what cycle is about it's about optimally using or using as much recycled as possible in our collections and or in the collections of many different retailers around the world yeah, that's amazing. And I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the how. So I know one of the great things that Cyclo did was you guys developed the first large scale closed loop production to upcycle pre-consumer textile waste. And you kind of talked about down, down cycling, and I think a lot of people do that, but the upcycling piece is huge. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? 
Yeah, how that came to be, you kind of have to start with the story of the waste. When something's considered waste, you don't really care where it ends up as long as it's just out and out of your space and not taking up space and looking dirty. The traditionally, or still to this day, what happens in large-scale factories is that a waste handler collects everything. They pay an, a nominal amount or, if anything, take it to take all the, the cutting waste. And this stuff was going into a market. And it's kind of like a gray market, black market type situation where it goes through several different processors, handlers. And so the benefit is that it, get, it does get segregated. And then you can go to the market and you can purchase the waste. Now, the there are ben benefits to that. And then there's cons to that. First, the cons, obviously, you lose traceability of like where it came from. And, you know, initially, you know, let's say like eight, nine years ago, there was a lot more concern about uh, using azos and harmful chemicals in the dyeing process. So that was what initially one of the concerns is uh, how do we go around that? Because if it's untraced, you can't see where it's coming from. But the since common practice has changed, it's less of a worry. But at the same time, so again, when we have the opportunity to buy it from a factory directly, let's say, so this is what we call a, a closed loop. This is when we are, me, the retailer and the factory are aligned in that that retailer's weight is going to go to us for recycling and for uh, spinning into yarn. And then we usually work with the retailer about what product to make after that. So it either goes back to the initial factory, make from like a t-shirt to a hoodie, so like the waste from a t-shirt will go into their hoodie or another factory that's also working with the retailer for, uh, to make it like a sweater or something like that. So that is kind of the concept is like how that's a closed loop to me. Now, is it, it's good. It's perfect for the situ perfect or, you know, it's good for the situation where it is. Um, uh, we're hoping that it sets like a model for how we can really deal with the bigger problem, which is the post-consumer and like actual like used clothes and things like that. So. I guess we can get into that later. Yeah. Upcycle. Okay. So then there's a lot of more benefits also is that when you do have it upcycled or closed loop is that you do have a better insight on the quality and the colors. So our process, we don't put it in a vat like and bleach it and then cycle it and then spin it. We, we do it by color so that the color maintains through the recycling spinning process. So you don't have to go and dye the garment. Yeah, that's great. And so that makes sense. And you mentioned mechanical processing a few times before as well. So can you tell us how that happens? So how can we go from that uh, pre-consumer textile waste down to then the new fabrics that you're selling? That's a tougher question because mechanical, again, the advantage is that you are not really messing with the chemistry of the, the substance, or in, in this case, cotton. But in uh, the, the problem is that that limits, uh, sorry, I'm, that limits the input and the output quite a bit. So for pre-consumer, it's great because you get a nice uniform input and you get a nice uniform, more or less uniform output. For how it can be adapted to large scale for post-consumer, now there's still a lot that you can process mechanically because you can still recover quite a bit of decent fibers from used clothes and incorporate that back into into the value chain upcycle it back problem is that you get a lot of short fibers so I, I don't know how much you know about yarn or spinning stuff but basically the short fibers are undesirable and the longer ones are desirable and so with mechanical recycling you're literally taking a piece of fabric and it's going through pins and wires in rolls and it's like gently like opening back up. So again, of course, you're, it's going to compromise the integrity of the strength of the fiber. People have recognized that and there are great companies out there now who 
who have developed or are still developing technologies should do that chemically so that the you can have a little bit more of a heterogeneous input, but comes out like what pulp would come out um, if you were to make viscose, and then you can make the man-made cellulose out of that. The, the benefit is that, that you can get a more fresh material is that you, you can take it, you can spin it, you can get the, the finer counts yarns, which you need to make finer, lighter fabrics and smoother finishes and things like that. And plus, then you can dye it to the color of your choice. This is kind of where the, the mechanical plus the recycle and the fashion part of it is really what's what's clashing here. Because you can do a lot of stuff with mechanical. How do you make it fashionable and good enough quality for it to be used on the stores? And like, how do you work with the more constrained set of rules, basically, or, or inputs? Like, you have to be a little bit creative on that. Chemical recycling process is very promising. Again, my only concern is that, not concern, but... Concern now because I think the world economy is going into recession and borrowing is going to be a little bit tougher because now some of these technologies are are developed to the point where they need scaling and they need scaling quick. And people are out there willing to fund this stuff. So the money is there, but the willingness to take on that liability in terms of uh, debt or if you're, if you're it's being financed by a bank or by an organization or anything like that, this is a relatively new, it's a new industry altogether uh, that's unproven. So that willingness to take on that risk, that's something that I feel like is going to is going to slow it down a bit. Um, otherwise, like we should be going for it as much as possible, just to add more options onto onto what recycled materials look like. Now, I don't think it's going to replace mechanically. I mean, it's going to help a lot, but mechanical. Recycling, I think, will always have a spot because it is less expensive, just like by the nature of not having poured a bunch of chemicals and use water, like it just makes more sense. The only input really is energy. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for overviewing that. And I had two questions. So yeah, I really want to touch on the energy piece, but I also wanted to double click on the investment piece because to your point, we are going to a recession and I know sustainable finance is also kind of becoming a little bit more of a buzzword in the industry, but a lot of these investors, the time horizons are not aligned. They they want that return in like a year or three years. And really a lot of these technologies, it's going to take five, 10 years, you know? So in your experience, uh, if you're getting funding right now, like, do you have any tips for anyone else that's in a similar boat? Yeah, kind of hops back to one of your first questions of what does sustainability mean to you? Sustainability is like, can you sustain yourself and your business before it becomes really profitable? Like, can like, how far can you stretch that return on investment period on something that is, you can say, will hopefully become more economically viable as people get better at it, but it, but it's still new. So looking at ROIs from the five and 10 year perspective, that's kind of it's it's part of the sustainability thing because it's again your your ability and and your input is there's a big supply chain thing that I want to get into later. But in terms of there are a bunch of investors out there willing to put in small medium amounts token amounts to new technologies at labs phase or at like lab plus phase you know and the, they call um, you know impact funding and uh with that that the the model that is simple is like you see almost like you you invest in a bunch of them like 10 whatever and you hope that one kind of works out and that'll cover your investments for the, the rest but we've had a good round of that especially with the new chemical recyclers going up coming out you see in the news some of these guys are going a little bit past that stage now into the like okay a million or two million to get 
the science right, get the underlying technology going and then make your pilot machine. And then, okay, that's a few million, but now we're talking about industrial scale. And then we're adding zeros on top, you know, 50, hundred million dollar projects. And again, you need industrialists to do that because it's not necessarily the scientists or like, you know, activists or, you know, academics that know how to run the industry or know what the, how to balance the risk of the industry. So it's, it's challenging. So tips for invest people looking for investment is like, they're, they're plenty out there. Yes. Like they, they are weighing the ESG criteria, but they are still looking for people who look like they can run a business still. So great ideas don't necessarily get there all the way. Having a realistic approach and a kind of like pragmatic to, and be, be, realist, be realistic with the timescale of what, what it will take to get to that point where you can actually scale it up so that it actually makes a bigger impact on our bigger problem which is our waste yeah that makes a lot of sense like adapting it to i almost i always like to tell clients to like you have to speak their language so if they want to look at your financial models if they want to know more about how your business is run like you need to speak their language so that they can help you and i find that helps as well because you can't just assume they're all going to be activists and just want to support the cause it has to go beyond that unfortunately yeah 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 so i I mean, that comes with time and experience as well, which is, that, and that's kind of the, the the question that like this is all about is like in what time frame can we do this stuff? So it, it took me like took my whole career ten years, not that long for some people, but that's my entire career. But like to learn how to speak that language and sustainable or starting off sustainable language, that language and merging the two. I will point it out: it is easier to start one from scratch in in terms of having a business built on sustainability rather than trying to retrofit or incorporate sustainability into a running business or some of these things because some of the metrics and how you cost certain things then it's a little bit easier to start it from from scratch that's kind of what we did and and that that was helpful yeah, totally. It's always hard to change things after the fact cuz then you already have processes and you're trying to retrofit yeah, sorry. It was also because then it leads into like, okay, how much of this is marketing and just covering your ass, and how much of this is actually being implemented and or, and is what's actually real. Like, I find like the whole Elon Musk Tesla thing very funny because he has a very low ESG score, but he's making the most electric cars in the world. Totally. And so I wanted to double click on the energy piece you talked about earlier. How do you think we can mitigate or try to start to reduce the amount of energy? Or do you think that's not even something for discussion right now? Like we should try to get it up to scale and then think about it. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the recent like the past year has really like it has changed my thoughts on this, this actually. Um, so I do believe that first we we got to get it up to scale as quick as possible because excuse me if i get a little bit too esoteric or whatever but what industrialization does is it provides some sort of security and stability more than agriculture now i'm speaking a little bit broadly but also in my domain which is recycled cotton so like i'm literally competing somewhat you can say with farmers and then industry so and i'm in a country where it was an agrarian economy and now it's being industrialized one of the fastest growing economies in the world it's one of the fastest industrializing places in the world but it's also has it's like it wrestles for first place in terms of air quality with a couple other south asian cities and so yeah that you, you can see these things happen like uh, or i can see these things happen like 
in real time kind i mean like you said like the time flies yeah i i feel like that in order it, it also depends on what exactly are you trying to save and what exactly are you trying to stop from happening what exactly do you think you can mitigate from happening now moving let's say let's say fashion materials from version sources to recycle sources then you have a you have a huge feedstock which is all the, the used clothes like you know there's there's just so much of it i mean um but the problem is because they are all different they have a different performance pro- properties they're different blends different colors the cost of getting one sorted to see even can this be resold or recycled is like two dollars almost something like that per kilo and i need it at like 80 90 cents for it to be profitable so you you got to match those things like you got to scale this up in order for it to be cheap enough to afford and then you put up the industry and then you hope that the source of which which the energy is coming from is getting less and less carbon intensive so i'm actually kind of an optimist on this stuff but that means we have to take we got to be a little bit more bold about the actions that we're taking Yeah, totally. And I think that it's the similar conversation right now with some developing countries, because obviously for developed countries, they just polluted, they didn't really think about it. But now their economies are flourishing. And then now all of a sudden, we're trying to restrict other countries and tell them what to do and what not to do. But we also want them to thrive at the same time, like that doesn't make sense to me. So I, I do, I am kind of an optimist as well. And I do believe that we will figure it out. But I think time is of the essence. And I think some folks are a little bit afraid of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, this is my thing as well. And like, that's, I mean, I moved from a Western country to an Eastern country. And so I'm seeing it in real life. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like, it wears on someone on a person. But so I mean, like, I've read some um, papers saying that if you get people to, uh, let's say, like a average income of like $2,000 a month, sorry, they start, then they start caring about the cleanliness of the environment like once you start giving people something they're going to start taking care of like what is theirs and what's around there so i'm a proponent in in getting people up to the point where we can each individually also be more responsible in terms of waste and 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 all that but then on the macro side in terms of energy like that that seems to be a more pressing issue right now or equally as pressing pressing issue but I guess my next point I wanted to chat through was what is it like living in Bangladesh? Because you mentioned you used to live in New York and now you live in Bangladesh. And so what has that been like? And have you learned anything kind of looking in the Western countries and also now in the Eastern countries? Yeah, yeah. Priorities are, are definitely different. New York is New York is a little bit e- almost easier to compare. Of course, it's like culturally, it's a completely different thing. But like New York has a constant like hustle and bustle. And this place, I would say, has as much, if not more, is, and there's just a lot of people and very little space. The amount of engineering and planning that needs to be done to be able to fix some of the problems that we have over here is like quite a big task. And for that, you need a lot of energy to do that. What you need is you need insane amount of concrete, basically. So like, okay, so if I were to just go on a tangent, Bangladesh is... Like most of the countries at or below sea level, something like that. It's like, it's a really low lying country. And uh, if let's say the worst of uh, global warming would take effect and, you know, the sea levels rise, most of the country could be under the water. So 
of course, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. You're, you're starting to see the effects a little bit already with um, a little bit more severe monsoons, a uh, little bit causing the salt water and the fresh water to get its little fresh water becoming a little bit more brackish. And that's taking away a lot of um, you know, farmland and things like that. And you see a lot of uh, climate migration already uh, from that. So like now Dhaka as a city is, was only designed for like, I think it was like 700,000 or a million people. And it has like 15 million or something like that. We don't know. The thing is that we got to get shell, like better living conditions for people who are, who are here now, better mobility. The most difficult thing about Dhaka specifically is the traffic. So like when I bring this up to, let's say a, like a Bangladeshi or whatever, who doesn't really know anything about like climate change or like, you know, wouldn't know, but like, if I ask somebody here, like, what is your biggest problem? I'm not going to say climate change. They're going to say, oh, it's the traffic or it's like, you know, just getting from one place to the other. It's like, well, there is an effect that climate has had on that. Like, because of the climate migration, we're getting more densely populated and things are getting a little bit there. But at the same time, we have the benefit of seeing what developed countries are doing, what where, where they've made mistakes, let's say, or where, you know, which is the right direction to head in, then we could develop accordingly. So. So far, I mean, this place has been recognized actually as one as one of the most leaders in greener developments. Like you have, a, there's like a building rating called LEED, L-E-E-D. Uh, so that's for the sustainably designed buildings for energy efficiency and stuff like that. So we have the most, or in terms of factories, like garment factories, we have the most in the world is actually here in Bangladesh more than any other uh, producing country. So um, it's good, like, because now, the, the vocabulary is changing here as well. The people who I talk to, like, let's say if I'm talking now, I'm doing my solar plant or, or you know, the rooftop solar or uh, a lot of that conversation now is about the energy and things like that. So, so people are starting to get the language and they're starting to incorporate it into their marketing materials. People, even in like people who supply me machinery, like this is the, the type of material that they're getting into. They're using us like as a source also of like, okay, like we didn't think that short, fiber spinning, which is what recycled fibers are, was going to be such a big thing, but now it is. So like, how are you going to integrate it? Like, how can we help you improve the machines on our end so that they can help you on your end? So like, it's, it's quite astonishing actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And I appreciate you sharing what it's like because climate change, especially to people in the Western world or the global North, it, it just seems kind of like a concept, but until you live in some areas where you're actually being affected, you don't actually fully realize the ramifications. And I think that's really good context for people to hear. If we were to ask me, like, what can we do about it? All right. If it's getting hotter and if the water's coming, like we need to, I want to get as much people inside well-built building with hopefully with air conditioning also that's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of concrete because the projections right now like we, we don't know exactly where we're going to land uh, until we're there so yeah so i'm switching over not switching over so i'm like moving towards okay let's go for industry side and uh and like try to live, raise the living living standards so that's so like when i came you can say that my aim was more environmental but like i'm staying because it's more social if you know what i mean like i have to make these decisions all the time but this is yeah i also think as you're in the industry more and as you get more experience i don't like to say you become more jaded but i think you just become more realistic right like you learn what's going on yeah yeah you're, you're no longer like bushy-eyed and like 
you know, too idealistic, you become much more realistic. And so also living in Bangladesh, I, I'm just really curious about your thoughts after Rana Plaza. Do you think that the garment industry has gotten better? Do you think it's around the same? Oh, it's gotten better for sure. For sure. Yeah. To me, okay, Rana Plaza sticks out. I was here during that time. I had, that was 2012. So first of all, it's like, okay, that was 10 years ago. What's happened in 10 years? It was, yeah, it was 2012. Yeah. So we had started our factory in 2010-11, our recycling factory. Our, so 2010-2011, sales were not good. It's hard like to sell yarn to somebody. Like You have to be... And recycle doesn't have the quality parameters of traditional yarn. So I was, still, I was trying to build the recycling narrative and like trying to say, like, oh, why don't you care about the fact that it doesn't make any water or any guys? And people are like, yeah. That's when I... I doubled down and kept on doubling down on that with Cyclo and, and making the whole process as low impact as possible. But yeah, after, okay, yeah. So so when sales were not going good, we were like, we were trying to just say, how do we save this factory? So, so we made a socks factory that my partner and I were, you know, were in, were in charge of, but we were both young, like 20, some 21 year olds or whatever. And uh, so we were like, okay, so we, we use all the yarn that we make to make socks and we try to sell the sock. And we opened like right when Rana Plaza happened. And then the, the Accord and Alliance came in and biggest thing in the socks industry is to be Walmart approved. And uh, the cost, like our factory was socially compliant and everything like that. We had just built it. And then people started coming in with more regulations and regulations and regulations that were kind of beyond the scope. So the cost of compliance actually got so high that at Rana Plaza time that we were like, why, this is not like, why should we do this? And there was, honestly speaking, there's less visibility or less um, pressure of compliance on uh, the further upstream you go. So like from text, from like RMG factories, ready-made garments have a lot of scrutiny on them. Fabric factories have slightly less and then spinning mills that make the yarn almost have none till recently. So luckily at the time where we were figuring out that the socks factory was not going to work out, we were got like starting to get the breakthrough with the cyclos stuff with um, actual like upstreaming into like garments. So like socks was like first when we first started producing, we were doing like hand gloves, like industrial hand gloves and towels or sorry, then like towels from like mops to gloves to towels to socks to sweaters to sweatshirts to t-shirts to dresses. So like, so like it's a, it was a constant evolution process. So once we made that jump, but like, okay, we start, start using it in sweatshirts now. That's was like, let's, let's close. Like, why should we s- use any of our capacity to make socks yarn out of when we can use it to make something that's actually like, you know, a little bit more durable, less you know, consumable or whatever, more value added and actually back into like, uh, I would say that was like a vertical cycling instead of like, not a vertical, whatever in between up cycling and down cycling is. <laughs> it was still recycling, but I said that about this, uh, reflecting about, we still have subcontract factories that are, problematic the spinning industry i think is going to get its day of reckoning as well because the the brands are just starting to audit them more now because but it's still also the responsibility of the garment and the fabric factories to choose partners who are doing spinning and fiber making that are more compliant with the laws and with safety with fire regulations especially with social compliance as well because the the labor regulations are also different for the different industries there's a lot of improvement to be done but i'd say that the that hump um which exposed kind of everything from around the plaza i think we've gotten over that hump where it's like you know not giving up uh, enough or whatever to like okay 
because uh, industrialists here lost a lot of orders. They lost a lot of face. And, you know, they have the, again, they have the, the benefit of learning from their mistakes, from our mistakes and perceiving more responsibility. Yeah, that's really good to hear because we often still see some labor scandals on the internet and I think it is getting fewer, but yeah, they're still happening, but it's good to hear from you that you do see a big change in the industry, which is really promising. Awesome. Well, to wrap things up, can you tell us a little bit about what's next for Cyclo and how everyone can get in touch and support you? Uh, sure. Um, what's next for us? Well, we are expanding now. Um, so we do have partnerships in, in Pakistan and India to um, bring the kind of Cyclo model to beyond just Bangladesh. But here, especially though, we're, we, we're going to put a bit of an expansion and new brands are, are coming on as well. The, the problem we're facing is actually with capacity. It's just that we can't scale fast enough. I'm not sure which brands I'm allowed to plug and which ones I'm not allowed to. Um, but uh, yeah, we do have some collaborations going with, with Selected from Bestseller Brand. We have some tote bag pro, um, going with the UK brand. So I'm not really up on, on uh, the, the social media side of it. But, but yeah, so what's next for us? Um, I mean, I, what we're really looking to see is that how we can take the next step actually and start also incorporating post-consumer more. And that's kind of what the India project's about. Um, again, there's laws and stuff to, to consider, but uh, again, trying to use as much of this dis- disposed source that could be a resource as much as possible. Yeah, no, it's all good. That's already a lot. And it's really exciting about the post-consumer piece as well. And I know you have a LinkedIn, so we'll have that in the show notes if people want to connect with you and chat. Yeah, uh, cyclofibers.com. And, and I think, I'm sorry, again, social media, I don't do that. Uh, but there's there's site at cyclofibers on Instagram and on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on to the podcast. I know you shared a lot of information and I think folks will get a lot out of it. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, share it to your Instagram stories and tag us at Recloseted. Make sure you subscribe to our Recloseted Radio podcast on your preferred podcast platform so that new episodes are automatically downloaded and you don't miss any of our free resources. Lastly, don't forget to rate our podcast five stars and leave us a positive review. That really helps us and continues to allow us to provide this podcast for free. Together, let's write the harmful fashion industry.